you say and most people say in this in this topic when we talk about it that it's so hard this is so hard it makes us so uncomfortable and i might say this several times in our conversation today what is more difficult speaking up and possibly risking a friendship or the alternative which is possibly a child living with the violation of sex assault are we willing to feel a little uncomfortable to talk about this so kids don't have to live it. That was Feather Burkauer on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting-edge, integrative, and evidence-based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. is Child Abuse Prevention Month, and today we're going to talk about courageous conversations that you can have with other adults and with your children related to bodies, sex, and also related to the risk that your child could experience sexual abuse. These are some conversations related to that. I've interviewed Feather Burkauer, an expert on sexual abuse prevention. She's been on the podcast before, episode 19, and today we're going to dive a little deeper into the nuts and bolts of how to have these hard and potentially awkward conversations with kids and adults. And for me, these conversations, I think, can feel scary and uncomfortable. And so I'm always pretty blown away by Feather, what she has to say on this topic. She's definitely out there talking about this to parents, and she's very direct and knowledgeable about these kinds of situations. And so we're here to kind of share her work with parents and caregivers in hopes that, that this will spark some food for thought and some conversations. I thought this episode was a great one and and just such an important topic. And I'm so excited that we're um, participating in Child Abuse Prevention Month by offering this episode. One of the things that comes up for me in the context of talking about child abuse prevention is this idea that even thinking about our role as parents can really spike our parental anxiety, this sort of responsibility of trying to prevent um, these terrible things from happening to our little people that we care so much about. And I, I just, for me, it's been really important to listen to these messages with an eye out for not increasing anxiety, but rather building awareness and building skills to learn how to broach these subjects in ways that are value consistent. And what I love about what Feather does in this episode is that she talks about really specific behaviors that we can be aware of that could be concerning, as well as some specific scripts that can be flexibly used depending on whatever kind of style you have. So if you see something that is concerning, um, she has some really nice suggestions for different ways that you can talk about it based on whether you're a very direct person or somebody who um, feels more uncomfortable having these kind of conversations. But again, I, I just think it's so important that, you know, rather than this just being another thing that we have to worry about, to really think about this as a way to just increase our awareness and build our behavioral repertoire so that we can be more effective. 
Yeah. And I think that's true with, with conversations we have with children too, that we're, we're kind of thinking through like, what is the message I want to convey to my child in a sort of developmentally appropriate way that's authentic and genuine. And really, you know, when you're talking to kids about these things, and also when you send kids out into the world, we're always making choices. And there's always some risk, frankly, um, in the world. And we have some choice in how we respond and, and in what we speak up about. And I think that for me, just learning from Feather has just helped me really be aware and open my eyes to certain behaviors that I should be kind of looking out for that I really might not have paid much attention to otherwise. Some, you know, red flags if if I'm sending my children into a potentially risky situation. And it also just empowers me to have conversations that are hard. And I think that having her thoughts on that has been really helpful for me, just to know that I'm I'm kind of thinking these things through. So we hope that the other parents and caregivers who listen find the same thing. April is Child Abuse Prevention Month, and we are here to spread the word to parents and caregivers on how to do everything that you possibly can to keep your children safe from childhood sexual abuse. I'm really happy today to welcome Feather Burkauer back to the podcast. Feather is a licensed clinical social worker and an expert on childhood sexual abuse prevention. She has an organization called Parenting Safe Children, and she's the co-author of the book Off Limits, A Parent's Guide to Keeping Kids Safe from Sexual Abuse. And Feather has been on the podcast before about two years ago, which is episode 19 for those of you who want to go back and listen to it. That episode focused a lot on what parents and caregivers can do to be aware of keeping children safe from potential sexual abusers and how to talk to them about body safety issues and that kind of thing. And so I'd really encourage people who haven't listened to that to go back and listen to that episode because I think we're going to build off that today, but there were some really important bits of information in that first episode. And also, if you've listened to it, but it's been two years, I'd recommend going back and re-listening because I just listened to it again recently and there was a lot I had forgotten. So definitely check that out. Today, I'm hoping to delve a bit more into the idea of how to have courageous conversations with our kids and also with other adults that can help keep kids safe. We did talk about this a bit last time, but I really find that this is kind of a struggle. It's a challenging thing to do. And so I was hoping that Feather could help us out in terms of how to have these kinds of conversations and what to say to people, because I find it's it's a challenge. So Feather, thank you so much for coming back onto the podcast. You are so welcome. Glad to be here, Debbie. So I bet this is a busy time of year for you with, with Child Abuse Prevention Month. Are you going around doing a lot of education? Yeah, lots of seminars and gearing up for April. Right. I just want to acknowledge for everyone listening that what we're going to talk about today and some of these conversations can be uncomfortable for people and can affect people in very personal ways. So I just encourage everyone listening to take care of yourself and do whatever you need to do. And if you need to seek support, do that as well. Professional support or friends and family or whatever that means for you. Thank you, Feather. I'm really glad you said that. Thank you. Well, before we start with the questions that I've prepared, I I actually got permission to talk about this from one of our listeners. After that previous episode, a listener reached out to us and wrote to us to say that she thinks the information she learned from that episode might have helped present a likely sexual abuse situation for her child. She had just listened to the episode. It was fresh on her mind. And then she was in a situation where she noticed a lot of the patterns that you had mentioned from an adult. 
And it was pretty much almost exactly as you described them, Feather. And so she had the courage to speak up in that situation in order to, you know, keep her child safe. And it ended up being really hard for her because it had, it, it actually had a cost to her in terms of some of her relationships. She told me it was okay to share that on this podcast. Feather, I really admire the courage that she had, and I hope that I would do the same thing in that situation. And I get that it was really hard for her too. And I know you reached out um, directly to her. What are your thoughts about situations like that and how how people can respond? I really was uh, moved by her story, first of all. What this gal had seen in a family member or a close friend within a family setting was some of the grooming signs that we talk about uh, in child sex assault. And just because we see grooming signs doesn't mean the person is offending or has offended, but it is a red flag. And she saw those signs and it would be difficult for anyone to speak up and risk a friendship or a family member becoming angry. But what I've learned in this work is that the only way really to prevent this crime is for us to talk about it. And it's it's really hard to expect children to be the ones to say, I'm uncomfortable with you sitting so close to me on the couch and we shouldn't be keeping a secret when the adults around are seeing those behaviors and they don't so, say anything. So when I read her story, you know, I really was moved by how she followed her intuition and really know that intuition is our greatest gift regarding safety. And we all have it. And when we honor it, it usually serves us well. And when we ignore it, it's a, it's a great disservice to ourselves and to our children. And gut feelings really are our body's way of telling us that there's potential danger. You know, the other, the other part of this is that in my work, and if you listen in the media to all the stories about sex abuse or if people follow them, that usually when a child does come forward to talk about being sexually violated, parents, community, and all the people around say something like, I knew something was off, or I had a gut feeling, I, something was wrong. And so often we ignore those feelings. But The truth is, when we listen to them, we truly can prevent this crime. And I'm not suggesting people go around calling the police every time they get a funny feeling about something. But I I really am suggesting that when we have some discomfort about anyone at all, including family or friends, spending time with our child or behaving in a way that makes us uncomfortable, that we respond. And that's what this listener did. And who knows what would have happened if she didn't. I'm glad you point out the uncertainty around that. I think that's really the case that she didn't know for sure if something would have happened. And I think that's part of what's unsettling about it. And yet she basically just spoke up about the situation that was happening and her feeling about it. And even that I think is, is hard to do. You know, it's not, it's not an accusation. It's more of a, this situation isn't good. Um, And, and I think one of the hard things about sitting with it after the fact was that not knowing. Now, knowing, however, Debbie, if we, you know, how, how does that saying go? If it, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Yeah. You know, we don't have, we can rely on what the research shows us about behaviors. Yes. When people offend, they show particular behaviors. And she was responding to 
classic behaviors. So no, we can't know what would have happened, but we know that asking a six-year-old to keep a secret about X, Y, and Z, and I don't mean about a surprise, you know, present, but what happened in the story is, is unacceptable. Yeah. And, and the behaviors that this person showed were not acceptable in this family. So I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's not appropriate with a child. Right. And I have seen a lot of news stories as well, just as you mentioned, where the parents said, yeah, in hindsight, I, I had a funny feeling because of this and this and that. And if those people had spoken up too, they would have had a very different situation. Right. And one last thing about this before we move on is, you know, you say, and most people say in this, in this topic, when we talk about it, that it's so hard, this is so hard, it makes us so uncomfortable. And I might say this several times in our conversation today, what is more difficult, speaking up, and possibly risking a friendship, or the alternative, which is, possibly a child living with the violation of sex assault. Are we willing to feel a little uncomfortable to talk about this so kids don't have to live it? That's a good take-home message for our, our talk today about courageous conversations. It's having the courage to do the right thing. Right. When, you know, given the choice of those two alternatives, I think most of us would absolutely pick the hard conversation. Yeah. And there's one more thing, actually, that you wanted to make really clear before we started that we're going to talk today about both talking with children and talking with adults. And although there are certain things we can talk to children about in a thoughtful way related to body safety and whatnot, that does not mean that the children are the ones responsible for prevention. Adults are, period. And Feather, do you want to say anything more about that? Sure, I'd love to. Um, Yeah how I start all my presentations and whenever I talk about this topic, it's my belief and most experts in this field believe that adults are responsible for keeping children safe from sex assault and that children can learn protection skills. It's important that they do. However, ultimately it's up to adults to protect kids and keep them safe, not for children to have to protect themselves. And you know, we, we put a lot of emphasis and focus in this country on, quote, empowering children, you know, to say no or to scream no if someone approaches them or tries to touch them um, or teaching kids to watch out for tricky people, you know, and what to do if they're unsafe. And there's like lots of articles out there that start with titles like five things to teach children about protecting themselves from sexual assault. I see those all the time. And again, I want to emphasize that, yes, kids do need skills and they do need options and to know that their body belongs to them and no one's allowed to touch their genitals and they are allowed to refuse unsafe touch. And all those body safety rules are so important and I'm all for them and I teach them. However, how can we expect a five-year-old child to look up to her uncle and say, don't touch my private parts. When we, the adults, are see some of those preceding behaviors, which we call grooming, before a child is touched, and we don't speak up and say anything, right? Our gut is twisting. We're feeling really uncomfortable. Someone's showering a child with attention, and we expect the child to say, don't do this to me, when we don't say anything. And there's something very wrong with that to me. 
So my message is, yes, kids need a lot of information, but adults need to take the first step by creating those environments that make kids less vulnerable by speaking with caregivers, which I know we're going to get into as we move along. Well, let's move right into it and, and start with this. Let's start with the adults first, and then we'll, we'll get to the kids in a bit. Okay. When you talk to another adult in a situation like the one that, that our listener faced, where there's just something about it that does not seem appropriate in terms of an adult interacting with a child or one of those intuition situations, how might you, like, what do you recommend in terms of how, how you could talk to another adult in a situation like that? What might, what might you say? So you mean if you're seeing concerning behaviors already? Yes. Yes. So what I recommend first is to speak with all caregivers about body safety rules and boundaries to minimize the risk. But if you are seeing something uncomfortable You know, people have different styles. And in my workshops, I have people practice what their styles are. And it's anything from being super blunt to, hey, what the heck are you doing to my kid all the way to, you know, I'm kind of, I'm not sure. And this might be all me and, you know, everything in between. So one style that I recommend is to be really direct and straightforward and say something like this. This is like, a sample conversation to acknowledge that talking about this might be difficult. So, you know, I know this might be really hard and uncomfortable to talk about, but it's important because we both care about the kids. And then to name the behavior you're seeing instead of blaming and accusing, but to name, I I notice that you're tickling the kids on their bellies underneath their t-shirts at nap time. Okay, I noticed this. And next, say how you feel. I feel really uncomfortable with it. We don't do tickling in my home. And then lastly, request something. I'd like you to stop. So I notice you're tickling. I'm really uncomfortable. Please stop. And if the person is not grooming and has no ill intentions, hopefully the end result is they will stop. They will learn a boundary, whether they, you know, respond defensively or apologetically, they'll stop. But if they are grooming and they do have intention to touch, why don't you tell me, what do you think might happen? How might someone respond if they are, if they do have a problem with kids, a sexual problem with kids, and they are intending to touch and you as a mom say, Hey, please, we don't do tickling. Well, I would just imagine that would be a little shocking to them and that, to me, there's a good chance they would just not want to be, that would not be the situation in which they would want to abuse a child because they know the parents watching and speaking up. Exactly. You know, and, and what I say all the time is I can't promise that, you know, because there are all kinds of different personalities and of people who offend but from the men and women that I have spoken with who sexually offend children and I've spoken with many in outpatient groups as well as in prisons is that typically they are looking for the easiest access the greatest opportunity and the path of least resistance yes some offenders would push harder we know that however most the minute you as the mom say, hey, you know, no, no, we don't, we're not comfortable with tickling, or we keep the doors open in our home when we play, or my child's allowed privacy, or whatever it is, they tell me that that steers them away. It deters. 
So I just encourage anyone listening, if you're uncomfortable with anything someone is doing or behaving with your child, that you have the right to set a boundary. Well, and I like that your approach is so direct because you name the specific behavior, you say what you're noticing, how you feel and what you want. That's good communication 101. With anything, right? With anything, right? I teach some of my clients that same skill. Um, and I think applied to the situation, it, it's just so focused on this one behavioral thing that I think it's, it's really effective. Right. And we're not accusing anyone. I mean, when I say I notice you're tickling, I'm really uncomfortable. Have I just accused somebody of being a sex offender? No, not at all. I've said, you know, in our family, we don't do tickling. Yeah. Or, you know, my child's the boss of her body and she doesn't need help right now pulling her pants up or whatever the situation may be, whatever the behavior is. Yeah. Yeah. Just isolating that. Right. And now let's kind of almost back up a little bit. I find it a little bit uncomfortable to have those initial conversations you just mentioned with adults that I don't know well. So, you know, I'm thinking a babysitter, a play date, you know, a family member who we want to just let them know that this is our approach. So what, what does a parent say just to be, you know, as sure as we can be that their, their child is, safe and is that everyone's aware of the body safety rules when they're in the care of other adults? Great question. So can I ask you? Yeah. <laughs> no, but can you just like, so I can understand what is it that makes you uncomfortable? Like what's your worst <sighs> fear? I think that they'll um, think I'm being uptight or something, you know, it's like a, oh, she, you know, she's being paranoid that, hey, we do this and this in our family, and what's your policy about sexual abuse, you know, that I'm going to be one of those moms that's a worry wart or something. And if you are, you'll offend them, and Mm -hmm. people will think of you. And probably most of your listeners right now are feeling the exact same thing. So before I answer the question, what I'll say is, guess what? That's what an offender wants from you. They want you to feel like you're crazy, like you're paranoid, like you're overprotective, like you're the helicopter parent. So you just bury that need to discuss body safety and ask questions. And you don't because you worry about what people think. And if we can't talk about it, if you can't talk about it, how do you expect your child to? If she's in a situation where she's not safe and you're teaching her to speak up, right? How can she if she's not seeing that modeled? So I'll just start with that before I give some language, is that we really need to look at if if we can't do this, we can't expect kids to do it. And there is, I think, a way to do this without accusing and interrogating and blaming people. And it's your right to discuss with people the boundaries in your family. Just like if you if your child had an allergy, would you up for peanuts, let's say, would you send her to a play date without discussing the peanuts? No. No, no, nobody would. But why can't we have the conversation about about body safety when we can do it easily about peanuts or the car seat? So the point of a conversation with, you know, babysitters and other family members and play date parents and camps and, you know, any youth organization is to match expectations with that caregiver. 
okay? And to have a conversation, not an interrogation. So, so that's the approach. So with other parents on play dates or sleepovers, what you wanna do is learn what's important to them about your home when their children come to your home and learn what's and and have them learn what's important to you when your child goes to their home so you're on the same page and i call this building a prevention team so if you imagine all the adults and the teens around your child who care for them and love them and take care of them it's inviting all of those people to be part of your team where everyone's sharing the same boundaries and understanding the body safety rules so when you're speaking with another family about a sleepover or play date, you want to weave in conversations of body safety with all the other kinds of conversations you have about safety and normalize it. You know, you don't have to start right off the bat by saying, hey, you know, are you going to sexually abuse my child or, you know, what are your rules about sexual abuse in your home? Because that would probably turn anyone off. Right. But to weave in conversations about whatever else is important to you, you know, about a bike helmet or playing in the street or supervision. I think it's I think it's it is helpful to just present it as another thing along the lines of car seats and what time you're picking them up because it makes it less of a big deal. So you just want to throw that in there too, along with all the other information that gets exchanged. And you're right, it normalizes it. Right, the, your, and your approach and your style goes a long way because again, this is not about interrogating another parent and family about their home. It's about matching expectations and finding out what's important to them, what's important to you, so together you can keep the kids safe on a play date. So I'll give some like specific sample language, and you know, I'm not saying somebody should say this word for word, but it just gives a feel of how you might approach this. So let's say you invite my daughter, Lily, over to come play at your house, okay? And we're not best friends, but we're not strangers. Maybe we know each other from the classroom or the parking lot or the park or wherever our kids know each other. And you say, hey, would you like to bring Lily over next week? And so what I'm teaching parents to do is how do you have a conversation about body safety before you just say, okay, sure, you know, and just send your child when you haven't discussed what we're talking about today. So you might say something like, well, Debbie, thank you so much for inviting Lily over to come play with Sammy. You know, she's so excited to come. All she does is talk about Sammy. And, you know, since we've never had a play date before and the girls have, um, haven't been to each other's home yet, I was wondering if you'd be willing to talk about how you all do play dates in your home and how we do them in ours. And what rules you might have for the kids when they play in your home and what rules we have in our house so the girls can have a fun, safe play date. Something like that, where you're saying, hey, I want to learn about your house and I want you to learn about mine. How do you think that sounds? That sounds good. Yeah. Does that sound accusatory? Nope, it didn't. Yeah. And you see where that goes. You see how the person responds. If they become offended or turned off, you know, maybe you check in with how they're feeling, or maybe that's not somebody you want to have your child play with. Or most people with that kind of approach will say, well, sure, what did you have on your mind? 
you know, and then you can start to weave in, hey, you know, my daughter's allergic to dogs. Do you have any animals? Or, you know, when your daughter comes over to my house, is there anything that you need from me around safety or around whatever the topics are, you know, and you just, you can then weave in the body safety rules with other topics. Mm-hmm. You know, I might say something like, I want to make sure Lily follows the rules in your home. So I'd love to hear if you have any. And I also want to let you know that Lily is pretty good following rules. However, we've, we talk a lot about body safety in our house. And one of the things we talk about around body safety is that Lily doesn't have to follow rules if she feels unsafe in any way at all. And I, I just wonder if you talk to your kids about some those kinds of concepts. And there I just gave some information around having a child obey authority without an exception. Yeah, that sets a really nice tone. Yeah. yeah. And then I might weave in, you know, in our house, we keep the doors open. How about in yours? And in our house, kids don't play with phones and, you know, have screen time when there are play dates. How about yours? What's important to you? And you're going back and forth and you come in with the topics that are important to you, like screen time, like playing with clothes on, like supervision issues. I mean, we can go on all day talking about the topics, weapons, um, playing doctor and sex development and children and what they might get into. And I'm not saying you have to have this conversation with all of these topics at once, but these are the kinds of conversations that can reduce risk and put you on the same page with another parent on a sleepover or a play date. You know, you came to my daughter's preschool and gave your workshop. That's how I learned about your work. So all the parents I know from that preschool, we all do all this stuff because of your workshop and we can talk about it and we all follow the same policies. It makes it so much easier. Right. Because um, actually I have a much harder time when it's the families that I don't know much about them. Right. I'm going to keep reminding you though, every time it's hard, let it be hard. Okay. Just acknowledge that it's hard. Let your palms sweat and your heart pound if it is. And remember that if it's hard for you, who is it really hard for? Yeah. Right. It's hard for your child. It's hard for her or him to speak up if you, if you can't. Just keep remembering that. (laughs) Okay. Good advice. Good advice. Okay. So you talked about how to approach other parents about this issue. What about youth organizations, camps, sports teams, that kind of thing? Right. So just as important to have conversations when you are a client or you're the customer and you're leaving your children in the care of of youth organizations like e-school and camps and dance and gymnastics and sports and religious organizations, et cetera. So what you're doing here, obviously you're not talking about the sleeping arrangements in one's home, but you're, you're, you want to learn if the organization has child sexual assault prevention on their radar. So that's the bottom line because everyone in the business of youth has a responsibility to have policies in place for your child. So you want to ask questions about their policies and best practices. And if their response is we do background checks, what I'll say is that's not good enough. That you want to thank them 
thank you for, you know, so much for doing background checks. So glad to hear that. What else are you doing? Because I've learned that background checks are only good for convicted offenders and most will never be convicted. So can you share with me, what are the daily practices that you, or the best practices you have in place to deter offense from happening between an adult and a child and children and other children? And what you're looking for here are things like one-on-one time with children, toileting policies, lap sitting, tickling, um, training for their staff, and a basic understanding of the grooming that we talked about today and in the last podcast. And if, and if an organization can't answer these questions or they become offended or patronizing to you as the parent, then I would say if you have the luxury to go elsewhere, do that or invite them to learn and That's see if they're willing to be on your prevention team. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think that would be, to me, that would be a warning sign if they didn't respond to that in a way that I liked. Right. It doesn't mean they're an offender. Okay, Debbie, it doesn't mean that the person molests children. It just means that they're not informed and educated. And if they're unwilling to be, you want to say, is this part of my prevention team? Because the prevention team are the people around your children who are willing to match expectations with you. Right. It just, it's, it's a little bit more, you know, this, this may not be, this place seems a little clueless. I may not feel safe to need my child there. Yeah. And now I want to also talk about, um, sleepovers a little bit more just because you mentioned them and, and I feel like there's a bit of a controversy around sleepovers. I remember having a lot of fun at sleepovers as a kid and I never had any problems and my kids are both kind of fascinated by them. Um, but I do hear some parents that won't let their kids do sleepovers at all. And in fact, we, we've done a sleep under with another family. Again, it was a family who had been through your workshop and we just talk really openly about it. And we say they're not ready for sleepovers. They're too young. So they did pajamas, pizza movie, and then we picked them up and took them home, which I found was a nice thing. But I know that, that at a certain age, sleepovers are pretty common. What, what do you recommend related to sleepovers? Well, first, sleepovers are a great memory for me as well as a child. I had a best friend, and she's the only home I slept in, but we did them all the time. And what I'd say is that sleepovers really are a personal decision. I I can't tell you or anyone what to do. I Some families never do sleepovers and believe that their children sleep in their own home, and that's their home, and that's where they sleep. And other families do do sleepovers. So what I can say is that if you do choose to do a sleepover, the conversation that we were just talking about a minute ago is critical. It's a must because by sending your child to someone's home, you have absolutely no supervision or control or, you know, ability to know what's going on with your child. So the conversation about who's in the home, are there older children and teens here? Who's supervising? Where are the children sleeping? Can my child call at any time? I'd like to be able to pick my child up at any time if she wants to come home. And to really be able to talk about anything before your child goes to that sleepover is what I'd say is important if you're going to do sleepovers. Along with, is your child developmentally able and 
cognitively able um, and and have enough confidence to be able to refuse anything unsafe. And if you don't think so, I would say don't have a sleepover. Okay. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah. And actually to me, I think the main thing, I want to know exactly who's going to be in the house. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure probably at least that the mom is there. I mean, I, I think that's critical. And yeah, if there's going to be some other people around, I want to know it. So yeah, right. that's helpful. Who's visiting? Are there other kids coming? Are there cousins coming? Are there other grandpas and grandmas? Are there just, yes, it's so important to yeah. know the environment and, you know, that they share the body safety rules that you teach your child. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, if it's a family I'm familiar with um, and I know who the parents are, that's different. If it's a complete stranger, personally, I probably wouldn't, you know, if yeah. it's someone I've never had any interaction with. But again, it's, I'm sure it's a personal, personal decision. Yeah. There's a, there's a, um, one article I can send it to you if you're interested on a, a gal who wrote a blog on sleepovers, how she will never, ever let her child go. Um, she was sexually abused on a sleepover and it's just a personal thing for her. There's no way she can get beyond that. And even if you know a family, you know, we know that 90 to 95% of all child sexual assault occurs by someone you already know, mm -hmm. not a stranger. So we need to keep that in mind. Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's not the best <laughs> guideline. <laughs> and yeah, actually, if you send that, I'll go ahead and post that okay. on, on the show notes for today. So let's move into talking about conversations that we have with children. How do you recommend that they that we talk to kids about issues like touching private parts, consent, you know, being able to tell adults no if it's unsafe, that kind of thing, without them feeling like this is their responsibility? So I would I would say it's important to normalize those conversations like we talked about with the adults, just like you have all the other safety conversations with kids. You know, you talk about not touching the hot stove and putting your helmet on when you ride a bike and your seatbelt in the car. And you can weave in conversations about body safety with those other safety conversations. And body safety is absolutely no different. You know, you can use teachable moments in the bath, changing clothes, you know, went talk about secrets during birthdays and holiday times and real life situations. And I think with kids, it's we don't even need to use the word abuse or assault with young children because they don't need to even they don't need to know this heavy, scary topic that we're talking about. They just need to know their skills and their boundaries. Also, you know, when children are sexually touched, it can feel really good to their body. And that can be super confusing for them. So to call it abuse, might, there might be a disconnect for them. There's no need to tell kids we're, we're teaching them about sexual abuse. So I would just say the approach is to normalize it, start early, and weave conversations about privacy and secrecy and touching private parts and taking pictures of private parts and all the body safety rules that you learned in the workshop and that I teach in with other safety conversations parents have with their kids all the time. Also to use uh, children's body safety books. And I have a whole list of resources on my website people can look at and to play what if games with kids, because what if games are 
critical thinking skills to get children to um, to be able to teach children refusal skills and to know what to do to get help. Well, I have to tell you that my kids are very used to conversations like this, and I thank <laughs> you for that, Feather. Oh, good. In the bathtub, just on a regular basis, they they know a lot, or you know they they just feel comfortable talking about these things because I do exactly what you said, which is I just bring it up and there's plenty of opportunities if you look for them. Plenty of opportunities, normalize it. And, you know, what people need to remember is as comfortable as it might be, these are the kinds of things that to deter adult sex offenders because, yeah, people who do this to kids are usually right around us and they know that you're normalizing this and talking about it and your kids are comfortable. Do you want to do an example of a what if game? Sure. So, you know, if you teach your child, no one's allowed to touch the private areas of your body and you name those areas, you name their genitals and you don't touch other people's private parts, then you play what if. So with every body safety rule you teach them, you can play what if, what if game. So what if you were at your friend's house and your friend said, let's get naked and run around the backyard and wiggle our booties? or look at private parts, which on some level can be developmentally normal, okay? And we may or may not get into that in this call, but that a child gets a request from a friend to look at private parts. The what if game is, what can you say? So you're teaching assertive language and what can you do? So the child has options of how they can get help or who they can talk to. And then you brainstorm. You know, in the assertive languages that your child's allowed to say, no, I'm not doing that, or I don't want to. And then you go deeper with your child. Well, what if you did want to? Because the truth is, some kids might want to do that. (laughs) And so you're teaching critical thinking skills here and options for them to get help. They can go and talk to you or who are the safe adults that they could talk to. And I really do recommend playing what if games with the 10 body safety rules that I do teach. You know, if you teach a child about secrets, we don't keep secrets in our family, but we keep, we can have surprises. Well, what if your cousin said, let's keep, let's make a pinky promise to keep the video games we're watching a secret and not tell our parents? What can you say and what can you do? And these kinds of, you know, scenarios are things kids might want to engage in because they're fun, but we're helping them think through alternatives. Yeah. Using these hypothetical examples. Right. right. Just like what if you were lost in a store or what if your ball rolled in the street, you know, just other, what if games parents play with their children, not around body safety. And what about this issue of the difference between normal kid play versus something that's getting to be inappropriate or unsafe? You know, kids will sometimes, you know, get naked or try different things. What's your opinion about that? About what's normal sexual development and what's not? Yes. So all children are sexual beings and they do play and they explore. um, And it's completely normal for them to do that. And it's important for, for parents to understand what the differences are like you're asking. So when children are of similar age and size and power difference, and they're exploring and looking at genitals and giggling and playing um, role-playing out scenarios. And the most important part is when there's the absence of coercion involved. Okay, so doctor games. And 
you know, there's lots of resources, including in my book and other places where you can read appropriate sexual development versus the concerns. The concerns would be two, two significant concerns would be kids who are exploring um, bodies and, and sexual behaviors with children three to four years younger than themselves. No longer is that um, within the normal bounds because there's too much age difference. So like a 12-year-old and a six-year-old, that's not doctor anymore. Okay. Okay. So age difference and advanced sexual knowledge. So if children are engaged in mouths on genitals, and I know that's blunt and maybe hard for people to hear, but it's pretty common. Um, and if kids are young children, six, seven are doing that, that they have a bit, that's a, an example of advanced sexual knowledge versus exploring genitals and giggling and looking and um, within the normal range. Now, what about teaching children about sex? I know that you've said in your previous episode that children who are more informed about sex, people who know the right words for their body parts, that kind of thing, are actually at lower risk for sexual abuse, that sexual abusers actually look for children who don't know. As a parent, first of all, sometimes I just don't know exactly what and how much I should be talking about. And I know your approach is pretty matter of fact, what advice do you have parents around that? And also this piece about it being developmentally appropriate, because I think talking to a three-year-old is really different from a 12-year-old. Yeah. So the first question I usually put out there to parents when we're talking about sex development and conversations with kids is to ask yourself, who do you want to be the person who educates your child about sexual development? And about sexuality. Mm, good point. <laughs> I can see you right now and you're shaking your head. Yes. Yeah, I so, want it to be me, you know, yeah. or my okay. husband. Yeah. Right. And it should be because yeah. hopefully you give correct information instead of misinformation. So if you want to be the person and children are born sexual beings, when do you think that should start? Probably pretty young, right? <laughs> right when they're born. Yeah. And that's when this starts, just like everything else you teach them. Sexual development, talking about bodies, uh, teaching them, answering their questions and teaching them about sexuality begins from the, you know, right from the beginning. And when we wait till they're 12, it's a much harder conversation. And I guarantee you that they will have misinformation. And then it makes them more vulnerable because someone could take advantage of that. So if you want to be the person, some of the suggestions are to start early by naming their genitals. When you're changing diapers, when you're bathing, to use correct terminology for their genitals and normalize that conversation as a way of life. Teach them about their bodies at every developmental stage. You know, include sexual development books right away. It's just like teaching your child to read or ride a bike or the healthy foods to eat, to be answering their questions, but also to be providing information before they ask you questions. Because some kids don't ask. Mm -hmm. And it's a parent's job to teach it, not a child's job to think it up to ask the questions. Usually kids by five or six from the playground have a lot of misinformation. And you would think five or six, 
that's that's how early kids are talking about you know sexuality with their peers so if you want to be the person you can start early and and just normalize it like we're talking about every everything else here you know use teachable moments give enough information to children to satisfy their curiosity but don't withhold information because you don't feel ready you know usually kids are much more ready to learn than parents are to teach it <laughs> Yeah. It's so uncomfortable. We have two great books at our house that we love on this. One is Amazing You, which is for younger younger guys, and it's about body parts, private parts, that kind of thing. And then we have It's Not the Stork, which gets a little more into sex and, you know, the logistics of where babies come from and that kind of thing. We just keep them out on the bookshelf, you know, with all the rest of the books. And it's they've led to some interesting conversations, I'd say, with the kids. What are some other resources that you'd recommend that that people look at for talking to their kids about sex? Not the Stork is for four years old and up. And that one is about um, how babies are made, starting with four years old, and, and body parts and sexual development. But that's the first book. The following book is called It's So Amazing. And that one is for seven and up. I I do want to recommend a a couple of other books. Those two books are wonderful, and um, they do use the terms penis and vagina and sperm and egg. The other two books I really recommend to your your listeners is um, What Makes a Baby, which is for young children, and the following book is Sex is a Funny Word. And those books don't use the word vagina and penis. They do talk about sperm and egg, and they are definitely focused on gender neutral um, issues and for kids who might be questioning gender. And they talk more about love and consent and relationships, crushes. They're absolutely beautiful books. And I highly recommend to include those along with any other books you have around sexual development. Um, I think, I think people know their kids best. You know, some parents are comfortable talking about all of this information with, with mixed age children because it's so normalized from the beginning and others aren't. And it's true. You might, you know, with, with a 12 year old, you can talk more specifically about pornography with a three-year-old. You want to teach them. No one's allowed to take pictures of your private parts. And you don't take pictures of other people's private parts. And that's how you address pornography. With a 12-year-old, you can call it pornography and you can get very specific. So so it's yeah. partly the level of detail that's appropriate for the age. Right. But, simpler. But, but some people feel very comfortable giving detail to a four-and-a-half-year-old who asks, how does the baby get inside the mommy? And one way the baby gets inside the mommy, because we know there's a lot of ways to do that, is, and then you describe what it's not the stork shows, which is heterosexual intercourse. That's not the only way to conceive a child. There's lots of ways. And I always say, whatever your conception story is to teach your child. whether And it's actually, that. it's not the stork has a section about how doctors can also... Help, yeah. Help join the sperm and the egg. Good. good. Yeah. My child, just side story. My daughter <laughs> looked at me and she's like, Well, I was made by the doctors, right? And I said, No, you weren't. And she was like, kind of like, Huh. 
And those are the perfect, those are the moments your ch- children hand to you that we, you know, that even though it's our responsibility to teach it, those are the moments when you're teaching them this information and they're like, wait a minute, but how does that sperm get to that egg? Did, mm-hmm. did daddy put it in her belly button or did you meet in a restaurant if the sperm and the egg meet and their minds are, they're so smart you know, and they just need direct information. Yes. When we had that conversation, I could just see the wheels turning in her head. Wait a minute. Right. Okay. (laughs) So one of the things I really do fear the most is the online world. You mentioned pornography, you know, sexting, social media, bullying. I mean, it's just, to me, it's terrifying. None of this existed when I was a kid, of course. And and there's no way to avoid technology in the world we live in. That's just the reality. How do you recommend that parents and caregivers foster online safety for kids and and teenagers? Yeah, I think it's the same as everything we've been talking about. You know, people, parents need to decide how they're going to manage children's devices. You know, there's a whole movement. I think it's called Wait Until Eighth where parents are waiting till eighth grade to give kids devices. But when you hand a child an iPhone or an Android or, you know, a a smartphone, you're handing them the world. You're, it's like putting them in the middle of downtown Denver, you know, and it, it's just so important to, to then have rules and monitor their online world and mostly communicate with them. Um, social media, we could talk for hours about this. You know? Right. But it's a whole can of worms. Right. But to have just to have open communication. And one thing that I think is really important is for kids to, for parents to take the stance and to communicate to children that their devices are a privilege. They are not a right. And that the phone you hand your child is owned by you. And that it goes to sleep at night with everyone else in a drawer. and that you get to monitor their history. And if there's anything they're hiding, they, they can't. And that doesn't mean they can't have privacy with their friends when they're older. But there's just so much that can go wrong with these devices that we need to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think kids can be pretty sneaky about these kind of things. They find ways. But that, you know, I've heard parents say, for instance, you can be on Facebook, but I have to be on your Facebook. I have to be able to look at it or I have Absolutely. to be one of your Facebook friends or something like that. So yeah. just so that they know that they, they're not sneaking around or doing secretive things, right. there has to be some transparency to it. And then that'll hopefully teach them to be more responsible. Right. And one other piece about, you know, devices is I'll ask you, do you know the average age that a child is exposed to pornography on a device, whether it's their own or someone else's? No, I don't know. I'm going to guess it's going to be shockingly (laughs) young. (laughs) It's like seven to nine years old. Wow. Somewhere in that range. And so it's not an if, it's a when. Yeah. If your child has a device, if they sit on a school bus, if they have friends in the world and you don't live in the middle of nowhere with cows and horses and have no technology, they will be exposed to pornography. So to preempt that conversation, I mean, to excuse me, to preempt that situation is to have a conversation about pornography and to do it in an age-appropriate way. I have a, talking points on my website parents can use. There's also an, a wonderful uh, 
website called amaze.org that has kid videos on porn that parents can um, play with their children to talk about pornography if they're uncomfortable. But when you hand a child a phone, porn can come up so easily, especially the eight-year-old who has not been educated about sexual development because their parents are too uncomfortable or just haven't gotten around to it. You know, they get with their friends and they Google or they ask Siri, what is sex? Yeah. And what comes up, or they type in boobs, and what comes up is the world of porn, and there they are exposed to it. And that's well, another show we can do. <laughs> yeah, it's an important thing to be aware of, and I do encourage people to look at your resources. Yeah. So you've talked about just this difference between teaching kids the rules and teaching them that it's okay to break the rules sometimes, that they don't have to always be obedient. To me, that even that word obedience is a little terrifying. But how do you recommend that? parents walk that line between, you know, we want them to follow certain rules, like not walking out into the street without checking for cars. Um, but that they, there are times when it's okay to break the rules. Do you have any additional thoughts around that? Definitely. Um, so parents want their kids to follow rules and most of the time children should, but the most important part here is that we give them exceptions to the rule that there are, that every child knows that there are times when they are allowed to say, I am not doing that. And I don't mean to homework and to chores and to the expectations you have to run a healthy and sane home life. But that kids know that if someone says, let's touch private parts or let's steal or let's light a fire or let's try this drug or whatever it is that is unsafe, and makes their gut, their own intuition or gut feel worried that they are allowed to refuse. So yes, you teach your children to respect adults and to follow rules, except, and then you can play a what if game. So here's a, just a brief example. What if your teacher says, sit and do your spelling words? What should you do? Debbie, you answer for me. What should you do? Sit and do your spelling words. Correct. What if your babysitter says, brush your teeth and go to bed? What should you do? Brush your teeth and go to bed. Right. But what if your babysitter says, let's get naked and roll around in bed together and then you can go to sleep? What should you do? Say no. And, and call for help. Or tell tell when I come home. Say no and tell. But if all you, a parent ever teaches is do what grandpa says, do what your babysitter says, your teacher's the adult, she's in charge, listen to your teacher, be good at school today. And that's kind of the, the language in the lessons. And you're just teaching, you listen to authority. How does the child know the difference between brushing teeth and going to bed when the babysitter says... And rolling around naked when the babysitter says, right? right? So much of the time parents say, be good at school today. Listen to your teacher. And I say, instead, how about if we say, have a fun, safe day at school today? And that's it. Yeah. If, and if you're so inclined to need to say, be good, then you follow it up with an exception. Be good, except mm -hmm. you never have to be good if someone breaks your body's safety rules. I like that. Yeah. I don't like that be good message in general. Right. And I also think, yeah, yeah, 
I think there's little opportunities too, you know, like they can say no to a hug from a grandparent or something like that, that, that also just show them that, that it's when it's their body, they can say no. Right. And grandparents don't always like that, but But a critical piece of consent. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's one final topic I want to get into, and it actually kind of breaks my heart that we even have to go into this because it's just so hard. And I hope any of our listeners who are are hearing this, that that this doesn't happen because it's just too sad to think of. But as much as parents want to keep their children safe, there is sexual abuse and there will be sexual abuse. And so I want to just spend a few minutes talking about as parents, how we can help and support our children if that does happen. And I know this is a hard thing to talk about. And it's a hard thing to talk about with our children because it's so upsetting to us. So first of all, I think it's really sometimes an important first step to even just get children to tell if something happens, even if you make it clear to them that that you're open. There's just so much fear and shame and children might be worried that they'll get in trouble or that someone that they love will. So sometimes kids don't tell. Do you have any thoughts about how we can encourage children to tell if abuse does happen? Sure. You're so right. Most children don't tell. Um, while it's happening. Some do, but most don't. And they often don't for decades. Okay, so anytime you hear, why are they telling now, 20 years later? It's for the reason you just mentioned, because of shame and fear of losing the person and getting in trouble. So I believe one of the best ways to increase the chance of a child telling is for the child to know they are being listened to. You can tell a child to tell, 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 tell when you're teaching body safety rules. But if a child doesn't feel listened to regularly in daily life to the little things that they tell about, then it's going to be much more difficult for them to tell the bigger things. I had I went to a, an offender group recently to a treatment group, and one of the men in the group said that he chose the child that he molested on purpose because he knew she wouldn't be listened to and nobody would believe her. So when kids can feel listened to and confident that when they talk about their worries and concerns, there's a greater chance they will tell more traumatic things if those do happen. Okay. Bottom line is listening. Listening. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And are there any indicators or signs to look for that a child may have been abused if they're not telling? Definitely there. I mean, children don't always show signs, but most of the time they do. And what you really want to look for is behavior change. You know, you know your child best. If all of a sudden you're seeing a drastic change in their um, emotional states, their physical behavior, assertiveness, depression, um, reactiveness, sleeping, eating, and you see big behavior change, that's, those are indicators. And there's, you know, there's state, there's different age ranges of different behaviors kids might show in different categories that are in off limits as well as other resources that you can find. But behavior change is what you want to look for. Yeah, I was just reviewing that in your book. And there are so folks who who are interested can pick up your book and look and there's kind of a list of some some things, but that's that's helpful. And then any thoughts around a supportive way to, to respond to a disclosure of sexual abuse from a child that would help help them sort of recover and be resilient? How do you recommend that yeah. a parent responds to that? 
what every child is hoping for and is so terrified they won't get when they're contemplating telling is the most important thing we can say, which is, I believe you. That's number one. I believe you. And if they have disclosed, I'm proud of you for telling. I will do my best to keep you safe. I love you no matter what. What is it that you want to tell me instead of tell me every detail? You want to say, I'm here listening. What do you want to share with me? And to reassure them it wasn't their fault and you will do everything to keep them safe. And and when I say everything to keep them safe, what I mean is don't promise what you can't promise. If it's a custody situation and the child needs to return to the alleged offending home, then you might not be able to promise that you can keep them safe, right? But if it's a babysitter, you're going to promise it because the babysitter's gone. Yeah. So I believe you, again, I want to stress is the most important thing a child can hear. I think that's so important. I mean, it just gives me chills just to think about the importance of kind of validating, being with them, supporting them through that. It's right. just to minimize that shame and fear as much as you can. Yeah. And that's the moment. To, uh, the moment of disclosure is the moment healing can begin. Yeah. And so many survivors say that when they told and they weren't believed that that was more of an assault than the actual touch itself. Yeah. 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 So just believing them, supporting them. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you, first of all, for this amazing work you do. I think it just makes the world a better place to know that you're out there doing this. You have workshops in Colorado that people can attend, and I've been. I highly recommend it. Online workshops for people who aren't right here in this local Denver area. What's your website so people can find more, find you that way? It's parentingsafechildren.com. Great. Yeah. Great. And the title of your book, again, is Off Limits, A Parent's Guide to Keeping Kids Safe from Sexual Abuse. So thank you for empowering our listeners with your information. Thank you for empowering me with this information. I just can't thank you enough for the work that you do, Feather. And thank you again for joining us on the podcast today. You are so welcome. Thanks for having me, Debbie. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. Www.offtheclockpsych.com.